Well, we are just all over the first book of the Bible here at Beth Messiah. Our Torah portion is, uh, of course, uh, Jacob and Esau, and that'll be our, uh, in our Torah study, we'll be, we'll be duking it out over there for about Jacob and Esau. So I was talking to somebody the other day about Jacob and Esau over a cup of coffee. And so when I said, well, why don't we, why don't we uh, take a look at uh, Jacob and Esau? It's this week's Torah portion. This person said, oh, yeah, me and my brother. Okay. So uh, we can all relate, I think, to uh, Jacob and Esau. We can relate to Cain and Abel and Isaac and Ishmael and, and all of that. Well, before there was an Isaac and Ishmael, after, after Cain and Abel, but before there was an Isaac and there was an Ishmael, and before there was a Jacob and an Esau, Abraham wasn't quite sure what was going to be because he was getting old and Sarah was getting old and they weren't having any babies. Uh, and they weren't quite sure what was going to be. And that brings us to Genesis chapter 15, where we are in our, the continuing story of moving through Genesis. We are in chapter 15. And this is a great chapter of the Bible. This is a great chapter. This is a very important chapter. And it also is a key to unlocking some other truths throughout the Scriptures, which we see in, in, uh, which we see in Genesis. We see the beginnings. Not, it's like the book of beginnings, like we like to say, you know? The beginning of a lot of, um, a, a lot of uh, models or a, a lot of paradigms, you know? Uh, uh, where we learn about the character of God and how it begins to play out. Uh, and so it's, it's, uh, it's rich in that regard. All right, so the life of Abram, right? We know that God called him out. We know that uh, he uh, 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 leaves uh, early on Ur of the Chaldeans over there in modern-day Iraq, right, by the Euphrates River, and he travels with his family up to Haran, because basically people did not travel in that area directly east and west, right? Because there was something in the way, and it wasn't water. It was the opposite of water. It was the desert, right? So you would have to follow uh, waterways and, and other well-known routes. And I don't know if you've ever studied, um, uh, his, sometimes it's called historical geography or biblical geography. That when people traveled, they weren't really wandering. There, there were roads. There were trade routes that, uh, that people would take. And what's interesting is that when you travel to Israel today, there are some roads that have been traveled for thousands and thousands of years. You know, uh, you look at the United States interstate uh, highway system and you go back uh, 50 years. Okay, we're talking 5,000 years. Uh, of a variety of routes. And so uh, um, uh, Terach and his family, you know, Abram and his brothers and their entourage, uh, went up to Haran, which is in Syria, which is in the very southern tip of Syria. And that's where God called out Abram to uh, go to the land that God would show him. And uh, Abram leaves and he begins to follow God. We don't know anything about him before this. But he leaves and begins to follow God. And God makes a, a promise uh, uh, to him of land and descendants. Land and descendants. And what we read about the descendants are is that 
these are not just going to be a small little group of people, but a lot of people, and, and they'll end up being famous people and kings and, and all kinds of, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, uh, people. Well, we know that Abram is challenged all along the way because he was a human being like you and I, and we face situations, uh, especially, you know, when you think of maybe earlier on in your walk with the Lord that you have these um, situations that you're not quite sure what to do. You're kind of like in a bind. And that is what we see in Genesis with, with almost every one of the patriarchs and their wives. So Abram, there's a famine, he goes down to Egypt, and he concocts a plan, and doesn't quite work out the way he thought it was going to work out, and God has to come and save the day, okay? And then, uh, then we see with, with Lot uh, that the people aren't getting along, and so he separates from Lot, uh, and uh, Lot takes the land that looks pretty good at the time, which is around the Dead Sea area, looked pretty good at the time. Uh, and then uh, uh, at the end of that chapter, um, God uh, encourages, this is in chapter 13, God encourages Abram and he reminds him of this promise that he made. But he gives him a little bit more information. At the end of chapter 13, uh, he tells him to look north, south, east, and west. Look every direction and I'm going to give you this land. Right? Remember at that time we said he didn't see it all in his lifetime, you know, but this is the promise that God, uh, God gave him. But then he says something interesting in verse 16. He says, And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants will also be numbered. Okay? We want to just keep that in the back of our mind for a minute. Okay? Then we come to chapter 14, where oh, a headache with Lot. Right? And, and Abram has to go and fight a battle. We, we uh, looked at this the last time, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Abram was evidently a wealthy enough that, he, that between all the people that he had, his family and everything, he, he could muster up an army. You know, that's a big word, muster, in the, in the Bible. It is, mustering up an army. Uh, and, uh, and he goes, and he goes all the way to Syria. Uh, and he retrieves Lot, and he, he saves Sodom, basically. And then he comes back, and on the way back, he has this experience with Malchizedek, Right? Melchizedek, and we talked all, all about that. And, and uh, Abram, he recognizes that uh, Melchizedek, that uh, Melchizedek is a man of God, a priest of God, and he gives him a tithe. Uh, and what's interesting is then the king of Sodom uh, it says to him, Oh, Abram, let me give you uh, riches. And Abram says, I won't take anything from you. I won't take anything from you. Because he has a sense of knowing God, he, he, can, he knows that, you know, Sodom is an evil place, and I'm not going to take anything, anything from, uh, from Sodom. But he shares a meal with Melchizedek, see? So, so now we come to chapter 15, all right? So it says in, in verse 1 of chapter 15, now after these things, now we don't know how long, uh, uh, how long that is, all right? But after all this, that, that we just reiterated. After, after all this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, that in and of itself is fascinating. Do you know that Abram is the only person in the Torah to receive information in a vision? And the only people in the Bible who received information through vision were prophets. The only people. 
Okay? And now it's not a dream, it's a vision. And evidently, you, you read uh, these texts where they saw a vision and God spoke. You know, so you don't read about like, um, like in a dream, you know, I was riding on a donkey here and then I went here and there, but I had a vision and God spoke. And so evidently they were in some kind of mindset where they received, you know, from the Lord, but it was only prophets. So it's interesting, just interesting, because Abram in a way is sort of functioning in a prophetic, in a prophetic way here. So that's kind of interesting. All right. And God says, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield for you. Your reward shall be uh, very great. Okay? So evidently, God discerns in the heart of Abraham that he's afraid of something. He says, do not fear. Now, in the Bible, when God says, do not fear, most of it, almost all the time, not every time, because you'll point one out to me, I know, but almost every time, it's right before a battle. So you would expect this maybe at the beginning of chapter 14, you know, when he's going to go out and fight these kings or something. But it's interesting because in the Brit Chalashan, the New Covenant, in Luke chapter 1, uh, John, Yochanan, his father, Zacharias, right? Uh, you know, his wife Elizabeth uh, could not have children, right? And so when the angel comes and speaks to him, and says that uh, he's going to uh, be a father, the first thing the angel says is, do not fear, Zacharias. So that's kind of interesting uh, right there. So, you know, uh, it could be that he's, maybe he's afraid of these kings that he defeated. Maybe he's afraid of uh, what, just what the future holds. But God says, I am a shield for you. Right? We're used to that word in relationship to David, right? Mogen David, Magen David, uh, Magen, the shield. We read it uh, in the Amidah, right? Uh, God is a shield, a protector. Uh, you could translate it even uh, like benefactor, provider. That wouldn't be uh, terrible, but God is the shield. He says, and your reward shall be very great. So it is interesting uh, that this comes right after, and Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Aner, Eshkol, Mamre, let them take their share. And then it says, after these things, God says, don't fear, I'm your shield, your reward shall be very great. So perhaps it has something to do with the king of Sodom. However, it seems what's on Abram's mind is not uh, riches, is not, uh, you know, cattle or land uh, or material gain, but an inheritance, an inheritance, or, the, you know, uh, uh, children, children. So Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? In other words, in a way, it's kind of like saying, what difference does it make what I have if I have no heir? If I have no heir, what difference does it make? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Now, 
You know, in the ancient world, it was not unusual for childless couples to basically adopt a servant or, you know, someone to make sure that they're properly, uh, that they have a proper burial and someone to mourn for them. And in return, they would be given an, an inheritance. So perhaps that is exactly what Abram is talking about. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, his trusted uh, right-hand man, the keeper of his house. And Abram said, since thou hast given me no, no offspring to, di- to me, one born in my house is my, is my heir. So he's assuming, there's so many little tiny practical lessons when you read these. He's assuming that because he doesn't see it now, it's never going to happen, right? And, you know, that is a theme that kind of runs through. You know, I'll just mention one, Sarah, kind of the same thing. It hasn't happened yet, so it must not be going to happen so we better make sure it happens, you know? So, I, so that's kind of interesting, that God said that he would be, uh, already in chapter 13, as the sand of the sea, you couldn't, you're not going to be able to count your descendants. But Abram is, what we are witnessing throughout Abram's life is really his, what we would call today, discipleship, his being mentored, you know? And sometimes... And you may know this, if you've ever led someone to Messiah, have that privilege and, and begin imparting them God's truth and you meet with them, you know that oftentimes you have to repeat things over and over again, right? I, for most of us, I know I'm at the front of this line, I, you know, to learn something and really get it, I have to hear it a whole bunch of times, right? I, and, uh, and, you know, it reminds me of a great story of the guy, uh, you might have heard this story, uh, the guy is trying out to be the, uh, the congregational leader uh, at some, uh, some messianic congregation. I'm trying to be contextual here. And, uh, and so, uh, like I did many years ago, I came here for a weekend and, you know, gave, uh, gave a spoke on Shabbat, right? And if you've ever been uh, in a church or synagogue, where you're looking for a new person, a pastor, a rabbi, right? They come, they give a message, and they go, oh, that was, that was good, right? Wow, that guy was really, he gave it to us. Yeah, okay, good. And, uh, and we like him, and we meet, and it's all good, and, and so we decide to uh, bring him in, hire him, right? So you have this congregation where the guy comes, and the next week, everybody's all excited, right? Because this is his first week, he's going to give the message, and he says the same thing. So people are kind of looking at him and saying, well, you know, it can happen. I'm, you know, uh, maybe he didn't remember what he said uh, a few months back. When he, Okay, the next week. Same thing, right? Uh-oh, what's going on, right? And then lo and behold, the next week, same thing. So finally, the, uh, you know, the elders come to him and say, you know, we really appreciate that, but uh, you keep giving the same message over and over again. And so he says, well, I have, just by being here, I have figured out that when you get this, I'll move on to something else. See? And so God never has infinite patience with Abraham and with you and I, has no problem reiterating the same truth over and over again. And it doesn't mean necessarily a lack of faith or a mistrust of God. But to really get it, we need to hear it again and again and again. 
So God already told Abram that he's going to be the father of a multitude of nations. But Abram says, well, since thou hast given me no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. In other words, he tells him in plain, of course they were speaking English, in plain English, right? There you go. Okay. And he took him outside. Isn't that great? Like he took him out. I love that little part. He took him outside. It was like he says to Abram, look, come outside. I want to show you something, you know? Uh, he takes his time with him. He doesn't just leave it. He gives him an illustration. He takes his time with Abram, right? And he says, now look toward the heavens, look in the sky, literally, and count the stars. Maybe God is thinking, if it doesn't work with sand, let's try stars, okay? If you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And then we have this great little verse. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Okay? He believed and God accounts it to him as, a right, as righteous, as a righteous deed, as a righteous act. Because righteousness in the Bible is things, right things, living rightly, being rightly, living rightly. And so... He believed, and so the fact of Abram believing is counted to him as righteousness, okay? Uh, counted to him as right. Now, before this, Abram believed, he believed, he followed the Lord, he left Ur of the Chaldeans, I mean, he left Haran, God said, lech lecha, go, Abram went, right? But here we see uh, this great little statement that he believed in the Lord and God accounted to him as righteousness. His belief was counted to him as righteousness. Now, the reason that this is not some little tiny obscure verse that nobody ever heard of is because in the New Covenant, Paul jumps all over this verse, right? In a few places, a few places in Romans, key places in Romans in the fourth chapter, and in the book of James and in Galatians as well. Well, Paul didn't write James, but in, uh, so James likes it too, okay? All right. Now, what's interesting, though, is how Paul is using it. I don't want to, I want to try to stick here in Genesis 15, but I want us to understand that when Paul uses it in Romans chapter 4, he's making a particular case, right? And the particular case that he's making is to the Roman believers, to these Gentile believers, is that you do not have to become what we would call today a Torah-observant Jew in order to embrace the Messiah of Israel. Okay? So he focuses, he, like he, he narrows in, he, he focuses in on this fact that in the Torah... People believed and it was counted to them as righteousness. And that's why he makes the point. Abraham lived before there was the, the Torah scrolls, before Moses went up the mountain and all that. Abraham believed God and he was declared righteous. And so therefore, righteousness comes by faith and not by doing things. 
that, you know, now what is he referring to? He's referring to circumcision, which is why that's such a big deal in the texts in the New Covenant, right? He's referring to circumcision and these outward uh, demonstrations of uh, Jewish uh, worship and lifestyle, okay? So he's saying that righteous, Paul's making that argument using this. Now, you could use the very same verse and make actually a different argument, which is really fascinating because it's quite interesting that there are two other places that I found, anyway, in the uh, Tanakh that, that uh, talks about righteousness. And it's kind of interesting because it's the other side of believing, and that is, of course, demonstrating that life, right? And it, so it's interesting that at the very end of Deuteronomy chapter 6, the same chapter that we read the Shema in, is a very interesting verse. So the Lord commanded us to observe these statutes to fear the Lord our God for all our good always and for our survival as it is today. And it will be righteousness for us. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all the commandments before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. Isn't that interesting? Now, that doesn't mean just relax, all right? That doesn't mean that we're saved by works or anything like that. Okay, uh, but it is interesting. It's important for us to get that when Paul takes a verse, oftentimes he uses it as a proof text. Okay, and, and that's what he's doing here with Genesis 15, 6. He's using it to make a point about faith. But that does not mean that faithfulness is not important or necessary. Let's turn to another one, Psalm 106. Okay, in Psalm 106, in verse... 30, about Pinchas, Phineas, Pinchas, says this about, you, you know the story, right, about how uh, people are uh, fornicating right there in front of Moses and everybody, and, and Pinchas uh, shish kebabs them, right, kills them both right there, right? Okay, so it says here in verses 30 and 31 of Psalm 106, then Pinchas stood up and interposed. And so the plague was stayed. And look what it says. And it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Oh, to all generations forever. So the point there is, yes, he did this thing. But of course, it was based on a faithful heart. He had a faithful heart for God and lived a certain way. Uh, and see, that is why Paul says, shall we continue in sin uh, uh, that, so that grace might increase? Oh, yeah, right, good. No, that's not what he says, right? He says, shall we continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? He's making the very same point. So I only wanted to mention that just so that we realize, yes, our salvation is by grace alone through faith, but that's how it has always been. It has always been that way. So Abram, we see he has a heart for God. He believes God, and God reckons it unto him as righteousness. He believes the promise of God. What a dramatic moment in his, in his life. Okay? So, again, very, very important that uh, Paul uses it to make that case that, that whether we're, no matter who we are, our performance before God does not recommend us to God. 
But the way we live I, I, it should be the fruit of a heartfelt obedience to God. Very, very important. Okay? So Abram believed God, and God reckoned it unto him as righteousness. All right. Now, I will come back to that. Now, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. Now, Abram, who just had this great moment of believing, of trusting God, look at the question in verse 8 that he asks God. Oh, Lord, how may I know that I shall possess it? Now, it's true that this is not talking about all, you know, a descendants greater than he could ever name. He's talking about the land. But it is very interesting that, yes, Abram is a man of faith. He's a man who embraced God. But he still asks the question, how will I know that you're going to give me this land? Because the land and the descendants go hand in hand. They're like two parts of the same promise. Okay? How can I know? That is a question that a lot of people ask. And I would suggest that the reason that Abraham, Abram asked that question is because he's a human being. And as human beings, we need physical interaction to, when we say to know, or proof, or how can I know, right? And of course, you know, if Eric was uh, here, I don't know, maybe Eric is here. Oh, oh, the pressure's on now, right? So uh, how important it is, therefore, uh, to be able to point to the, what we might call the historicity of the faith. That, that, that we believe not just in some metaphysical mind game, but that there is historical evidence, right? Now, so Abram is in, in a way is saying, how do I know? What's, what's the evidence, right? So now God is going to do something that's really quite spectacular. Up until this point, we don't read anything about a covenant. We don't read anything about a covenant. You know uh, that in Genesis 12, you read your almost every commentary or book or systematic theology, the Abrahamic covenant, chapter 12. I am going to suggest to us that that is the Abrahamic promise. Okay? That is the promise that God makes by word. And I seem to remember saying this, I don't remember when, but sometime in, the, in recent history, that there is no word in the Hebrew Bible for promise. There's no word. Now, Greek's a different story. Epanglia, uh, uh, I think it is. I think that's the word. I think that's the word. But in Hebrew, davar. <laughs> this is the word. The word is the promise. You look up just about every case, the word for promise is davar. There might be a couple of other words, but all referring to speech. All referring to speech. Okay? Now, there is a word in Hebrew for uh, the word uh, swear, like swear. But do you know that? Find a verse where God swears. Find a verse where God swears. People are swearing up and down in the Hebrew Bible in a good way. Okay? In other words, you know, uh, saying for sure, like, cross my heart and hope to die. You know, that kind of thing. You know, put your hand on the altar, swear by the altar, you know, that kind of thing. 
like proving that the word is true or this is really going to happen. God just says it's going to happen. Okay? But covenant in the Torah, the first time we read covenant is, the, is in the Noah story. Okay? The second time is here in chapter 15. And the word covenant does not mean promise. Doesn't mean promise. Okay? So if you've heard that, that's another thing. It doesn't mean promise. Brit means more like treaty, a, a, a treaty or contract. Uh, or, um, yeah, well, that's good enough. Treaty or, or contract. Okay? And uh, here in our chapter, as well as in other places, when, when the talk is made of making a covenant, it's cutting a covenant. Cutting a co- karat. Cutting a covenant. Okay? And so here, God is going to do something for Abraham and for humanity uh, that is amazing when you think about God, the creator of heaven and earth. What he's going to do is take a human institution and he's going to uh, place himself in a human institution of treaty and obligate himself physically to Abram and his descendants by entering into this, we would call today a, a treaty or a contract. Okay? All right. Now, how does he do this? Now, how does he do this? All right. Uh, we see here, he's go- he says, So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon, pigeon, Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he didn't cut the birds. May I suggest simply because they were little, okay? And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. All right, now in the ancient times, when a a covenant would be made, this is how it would be made, okay? This is how it would be made. They would cut up animals, and the two parties would walk between the animals. Now, there was something, though. I, um, when there was a, uh, uh, a land a given, uh, 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 very interesting, uh, when there would be a, uh, like a king and a, um, you know, and, and a vassal, one might say, uh, what would happen is, is that the king uh, would, uh, is going to give land to a, a group of people, all right? Uh, uh, interestingly enough, uh, the, uh, the two, uh, the, the cut-up animals would represent what would happen to whoever impedes the you know this uh, this treaty from uh, from being maintained. So in other words, the cut up animals represent the judgment that would come upon uh, either one of the two parties if they didn't fulfill their obligation, or if it's a king and uh, a vassal nation or people, uh, whoever would impede this uh, land from being given. Okay. Uh, and so we see here what happens in verse 12. 
Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, a terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set, and it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and flaming torch, which passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, Kenizzite, Kadmonite, Hittite, Perizzite, uh, Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. All right, so we see that Abram falls asleep, and this manifestation of God passes between the pieces alone. God is saying that I will indeed take full responsibility for this covenant to come to its fruition, okay? God says, I will take full responsibility. But it is interesting what he says. He doesn't just say, he passes through the pieces, he doesn't just say, and I'm going to give you this land, but he says also, know for certain that your descendants are going to be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. This is speaking of the Egyptian slavery. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And then you'll die at a good old age. Well, you know, it's interesting. We know that those things took place. I will say first here uh, that there is no way for anyone to know exactly how many years, though, in case you're wondering, I'm just saying, in case you're wondering, how many years the Israelites were actually enslaved? You know, that's a real, nobody knows. Because we talked about this not too long ago uh, in our Exodus class. Because from the time that the Israelites go to Egypt, they're not enslaved yet. So we don't know exactly how long it takes until they're enslaved, right? And then we, so then we don't know exactly how long. So how long are they in Egypt altogether? including the enslavement. You go figure that out, okay? Uh, There are roundabout numbers of years, approximately 400, 430 years. Uh, Don't get hung up on on these things. Uh, But uh, hopefully uh, we'll have a little bit of an answer when we look at the next verse about something. Now it says here, very interestingly, about this fourth generation thing. Then the fourth generation, they shall return here For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Okay, so first of all, generation. Do you know that in the Bible there are probably at least three to four different um, definitions of how long a generation is? One place it's 70 or 80 years, another place it's 100 years, another place it's 40 years, okay? So we can't cherry pick the verses on what a generation is, all right? But evidently, the, uh, in the ancient world, it's, it was like a, a generation, the word door, the, the word door really means something like from, something akin to a life cycle. 
something akin to a life cycle. And the way that this is generally understood is that like four lifetimes, lifetimes, at least at this point in ancient, uh, ancient history, okay? Uh, there you go. And I have even uh, William Albright. Some of you may know who he is. And I, you know, uh, so his contention is until about 1500 BC or BCE, a generation was a lifetime. So, okay? Now, but there's something else that's actually more interesting here, where it says, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. That tells us something, a very important truth. That little phrase, very important Bible truth. We might wonder, why is it, uh, you know, the Israelites went and conquered this land, right? Well, you know, when we were talking about um, Noah, remember we talked about why the word Canaan is used uh, and not Ham when it comes to the judgment, not, not the judgment on Ham, but the judgment on Canaan. And Canaan is a son of Ham. We talked all about that. And that God was using the Israelites to judge the Canaanites. It's a judgment. Just like later on in history, the Assyrians are a judgment upon Israel. God uses nations to, to judge nations. But what is fascinating here is that the right time for the judgment is not based on the calendar. It's based on morality. It is based on, uh, has the cup of wrath been filled up? And it's very interesting that in the Bible, when, when times of the future... Events of the future, not, not always the end of the future, but times of the future, they have to do more with activity that, that is going on in the world and when it, when it is complete, as opposed to a date. Okay, So I think it's interesting here, but basically what he's saying is, is that it's going to take, why, why is it going to be the fourth generation? It's going to take that long for the Amorites, who were sort of like the, um, you know, Canaanite was, was more of a, uh, a confederacy uh, of city-states than it was just one, one people. And the Amorites were a significant group when the Israelites were on the plains of Moab and entered the land. And it was the right time because that's when they filled up their cup of wrath. That is when it was the right time that uh, they had... They had sinned enough. Now comes the judgment. And it is very interesting that you read, for example, I won't take the time to turn to it, but you can look. You know, in Romans chapter 11, when it talks about the salvation of Israel, when? When the times of the Gentiles are, are fulfilled. Whenever that is. Whenever that is. Uh, you know, and, uh, and even in Matthew chapter 24, when you see all these events taking place. Uh, and it is very interesting that Yeshua actually even says, in regard to that, in Matthew chapter 24, all right, in verse 20, but pray that your flight may not be uh, in the winter or on a Shabbat, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. And unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. For the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. In other words, what we see is God, in, in a sense, waiting and watching the world unfold, you know? And at the right time, when, when sin has run its course, that's when it will be. Now, interestingly, uh, in the prophet Habakkuk, 
there is a great statement about this idea of uh, things happening when there's, you know, when will the time be? And the reason that I'm really taking time on this is because, well, first let me read this and I'll tell you why. Boy, am I going to tell you why. All right, anyway. So, uh, you know, Habakkuk prays, uh, Lord, God, judge already. When is it going to be? When is it going to be? How, how can you let sin run rampant? And then God says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to do something you can't believe. I'm going to take the enemy, I'm going to take the Chaldeans, and they're going to come and judge. No, God, you can't do that. You just can't do that. That's just, that just can't be. And then he hangs on for dear life, you know, for the answer of God. And he says, I, he says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. And I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. In other words, he's thinking, I'm going to get, God's going to yell at me for like saying, no, you can't do this. And so this is what God says. Then the Lord answered me and said, record the vision and inscribe it on the tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. In other words, it's coming. It's nothing can stop it. And then look what he says. Though it tarries, wait for it. Wait, it hastens toward the goal. It cannot fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it certainly will come. It will not delay. And so isn't that a great verse? That, you know, what's going to happen is going to happen. And it's right on as God will have it be. But for us, we wait and we wait and we wait and we think, when is it going to be? When is it going to be? When is it going to be? It tarries from our point of view. And we must wait. We must wait. But then God says it will not delay. And the, the point of all of this is, and of course, even the apostles ask Yeshua, now are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's what you're supposed to do. And he says, don't worry about times or ages, epics, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But what I want you to do is to be filled with the Ruach and share this message with the world, okay? So I would suggest that when you're on your Facebook or you're surfing the net or you're watching God TV or whatever and you hear that the moon's going to be doing this or the stars are going to be doing that, will you please not call me? How's that? All right, because what I should do is have, you know, when you call Beth Messiah, what I should have is I press one if you want to talk to somebody. Press two if you have a question because you think the Lord's going to return because uh, the stars are lined up or a flood happened somewhere in Minnesota or something. All right, then uh, there's a message waiting for you. Press two, right? Forget about it. All right, there you go. Uh, and that is, that is really important. It's really serious because sometimes people's faiths get shaken on these things. Or it's, it's hanging by a hinge. You, you know? No. God has that figured out. But we're called to carry on. And so that little part of that verse, even though it's not the main event of the chapter, is very helpful. Because he's talking there about the conquest. Joshua going in. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Until the iniquity is so great, then judgment must happen. Because I would go on to say that God doesn't want the judgment to happen. But he waits and he waits. But eventually it, 
the cup overflows and judgment must take place. Okay? So that's very important. Then then we see, uh, again, this manifestation of God goes through the, you know, goes through the cut animals, right? And then we see that God says, I have made this, uh, I have made this uh, 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 covenant. Now, I, very, this covenant is very, very important because here is where God obligates himself. He obligates himself to this promise. Even though we see fallible human beings all through history, bad kings, good kings, all the way to, to modern times, God has still obligated himself to this promise uh, as we see it, uh, as we see it here. A quote, for the first time in the history of religions, God becomes the contracting party, promising a national territory to a people yet unborn. This pledge constitutes the main historic title of the Jewish people to its land, a title that is unconditional and irrevocable, secured by divine covenant whose validity transcends space and time. And that is Nakam Sarna who says, who says that. But there's something else, and I know uh, that we need to end here, but we need to understand something about how this relates to Yeshua. How does this all relate to the Messiah? So God has made a promise, right? A, a promise of the forgiveness of our sins. He made a promise that he would place the Torah inside of us, in our inward parts. He made a promise that he would empower us to live godly. He makes a promise that, that uh, we will never be separated from God when we believe him, when we trust him, okay? But isn't it interesting that God loved us so much that he enters into this world in a physical way and engages in human institutions, and Yeshua basically obligates himself to the rulings of the Sanhedrin and, and Pilate and the Romans. He obligates himself to this world. Don't we sometimes say, why did, I mean, he created all, he could, he could just do away with all of them. No, because he gave us in a physical way, in time, space, history, the proof, one might say, that his promises are true. And so what he did is in the new covenant, we have a physical covenant, covenantal death and resurrection that inaugurates these promises, you see? And so when people say, after we say, well, you believe in the Lord, you believe, but how can I know? How can I know? What did God do? He entered into human life and institutions to give Abraham proof. That's exactly what Yeshua did entered into human life and human institutions and gave us proof. He died for our sins and he rose from the dead. We could say, couldn't God just forgive sins? God can do anything. But in a very physical way, he did this. In the very same way that there were animal offerings. Why kill all those animals? May I suggest so that we would get the point. Why was there a physical temple, a physical tabernacle, all that? So that we could understand a relationship with God. Because he made us physical and we need physicality. That's why we have traditions. That's why we, God uh, uh, you know, gave us uh, words to say and, and, and a book with words in it. 
a physical way of why do people have a tendency to idolatry? Because we're seeking that physicality, see? But in Yeshua, we have that. We can point to historical uh, 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 proof of the resurrection of Messiah in, in space-time history. And uh, isn't that right, Eric? There you go. All right. And, uh, and so I find that, you know, fascinating that uh, God gave him this physicality. Now, at the very end of the chapter, isn't it interesting, the dimensions of the land, by the way? The dimensions of the land are basically from the Wadi El Arish. It's not the Nile. The Wadi El Arish. You know what that is? Arish is a city in Egypt today. And it's right at the border, of basically, of Egypt and the Sinai. Okay? Uh, and so from this Wadi El Arish, it's like, hey, you know, you know where, uh, when you look at a map, it's like a V? How is well, up in the corner. Up in the corner by Egypt. Well, here. Up in the corner by Egypt. That's where Arish is. So the Wadi El Arish. From there, all the way to the Euphrates River. Whoa! What does that mean? May I suggest it means one of a couple of things. Okay? One could very well mean that we have yet to see the real dimensions of the land until the Lord returns. Certainly mean that. Okay? Another thing it may mean is the influence of the God of Israel in the ancient world. Because it's very interesting that in, in Isaiah chapter 19, you read this fascinating statement about how Egypt and Assyria are going to be God's people, right? Uh, uh, and, and Israel in the middle. And there's going to be a road from Egypt to Assyria. And the three of them are going to worship the God of Israel. From, from Egypt to Assyria is basically from Arish to the, to, the, uh, to the Euphrates. So it could speak of, you know, the belief in the God of Israel as well. But there's no reason not to believe that this is the ultimate um, uh, dimensions uh, of, uh, of the land. So finally, uh, for us today, you know, what can we take away from this? What we can take away uh, from this is that God is, uh, you know, God is indeed faithful, right? God says to us, fear not, I am your shield, right? God is our protector. No matter what current events look like, God isn't finished. He's not finished with us. He who began a good work in you will continue it to the day of Messiah Yeshua, you know? And, uh, and God is not finished yet with this world, right? Uh, Abram, in his discipleship, after this, faced still all kinds of challenges and still made a few errors along the way, even as someone who embraced God and whom God made this covenant. But what Abram did is he kept going. He kept trusting and he kept believing, right? And so we may face all kinds of challenges. Let us not lose hope. Let us keep moving forward. Remember that in the book of Hebrews, it says that Abram never saw, he never saw the ultimate uh, uh, fulfillment to his, uh, to his promise, right? Uh, and at the end of that passage in the book of Hebrews, therefore, with such a great cloud of witnesses, let us have our eyes fixed on Yeshua, the author and finisher of our faith. And so today, in Yeshua, I, we have indeed uh, the, uh, the promise of the covenant. We enter into 
this covenant uh, with God, the new covenant, when we embrace the uh, Messiah, right? And so it doesn't matter how religious or unreligious we may be. It's not about that. It's about embracing the Lord, trusting in his promises, and then, then by that we enter into his new covenant. And, uh, and, and that is where uh, we live. We live in that new covenant faithfulness. And so let me just close with the words of, a, of another Messianic Jewish person in the new covenant. That would be Peter, who says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Yeshua HaMashiach, Yeshua the Messiah, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born from above to a living hope through the resurrection of Yeshua the Messiah from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, much like what God promised Abram and God uh, going through those pieces. To, an, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Yeshua, the Messiah. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so Yeshua is the very incarnation of the God of Israel. And uh, uh, we read that, uh, you know, God does so love the world that he sent Yeshua so that those who believe, just like Abraham believed, may indeed uh, inherit the Olam Haba, uh, the world to come. And so uh, let's pray. Lord, thank you, God, for this great promise that you made to Abraham. Lord, thank you that that, uh, that that promise resulted in a covenant. Thank you, Lord, that you have indeed obligated yourself to us. Lord God, you are the creator of heaven and earth, yet you have placed yourself in a covenant. Lord, thank you, God, that you knew that when you gave Israel the Torah that something else was needed. And so thank you, Lord, that you promised a new covenant where you would place the Torah within us and that you would give us uh, indeed your very self, that your ruach, would, your spirit would dwell within us and empower us to live that godly life. Lord, we thank you that you not only made this covenant, Lord, but you physically uh, uh, cut the covenant, one might say, in the death and resurrection of Yeshua, Lord, that gives us the for sure yes to your promises. So God, may we be encouraged and may we embrace the Messiah today. We pray in Yeshua's name.